Before we start, Bruce and I just wanted to say thank you to our friends at Trader Joe's who are back as our presenting sponsor again for 2019. Stu, not just the uh, the place where I get my favorite dessert, the awesome hold the cones, the little mini ice cream cones that you and I have talked about, but uh, it's good because it's something where we shop every week and to have them part of the Audible, we couldn't be happier. They've been with us since we started this back up in August of 2017. They've been a great supporter of ours. Thank you, Trader Joe's. Welcome back to The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined not by Stu Mandel today. Unfortunately for Stu, my co-host on this. He is under the weather. So I'm going to fly solo, but I have two really good guests on the podcast today. A little bit later, we're going to talk to Ryan Abraham. He is the publisher and founder of uscfootball.com. They know all things Trojan over there. And there's a lot of stuff going on at USC. Not all of it very good right now. So we're going to dig into that. But first, we're going to be joined by the new head coach at the University of Miami, Manny Diaz. I think we got a really interesting discussion on a lot of things. And so let's get to Manny now and we'll get to Ryan Abraham after that. And now I'm pleased to be joined by the new head coach at the University of Miami Hurricanes, Manny Diaz. Manny, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. My pleasure, Bruce. All right, so there's been a lot of buzz that you guys have generated since you've become the, the head coach there. For people who have seen the hashtag and everything, explain to us what the new Miami is and what that means. Well, you just wanted to create a, um, an image for your players, first on campus, the guys in your locker room, that, that things were going to be different. Because obviously when, when, when there's a, a hire made from within the program, and, and obviously the Temple situation notwithstanding, you, 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 know, you just wanted to let everyone in the locker room know that everyone would be moving out of their comfort zone. Things would be different. There'd be a, there'd be a, there'd be a different culture in the building, and, and no one should really know what to expect when, when they came back to our first team meeting that happened uh, just over a week ago. You also want the same thing for the recruits. You want the same thing for the for the, the fan base. You want everyone to understand that you know the way we're going to go about things is just going to be a little bit different, and, and uh, this is just not what, while acknowledging, you know, there's a lot of amazing things that Mark Rick did for this program to advance it over the past three years. And things are just going to be a little bit different, and, uh, and that ultimately is the new Miami. So I thought you gave a great answer. You did college game day. I don't even know if it was called college game day this particular. It was like maybe the before a major bowl game. You'd only been on a job a couple of days, and you started talking about optimist football. I don't know if you said optimist, you know, like, but down there, peewee football. And it's different in South Florida, and, and it obviously, it has an amazing legacy of great players who've gone on in the NFL, and many have come through UM. For people who didn't see it, how do you explain getting? You know, Miami kind of for a long time it was you'd hear the term swagger. It came up a lot, and it was almost a double-edged sword. You know, it was like for a lot of people, it represented a lot of different things. But when you start talking about getting the kids to play with the passion that they probably seen growing up from the time they're four or five years old. How do you think that fits into to your vision of where Miami needs to get to? Well, from, from, from my vantage point, just growing up here and then, and then getting the profession and watching from afar, when Miami has been at its most true sense of itself, uh, and, and what I mean is that in terms of representing the community and representing the style of football down here that, as you mentioned, really does begin in, in youth football. Miami's had the most success when, when Miami has tried to shoehorn itself into into a different type of image. I, f- I feel like there's always been a struggle. Now, now the image of who Miami is that that shouldn't be a negative thing. There's there's the, the, I think from afar at times there's a negative connotation, and you know some of the things from the you know the thirty for thirties and and that type of stuff, but that's that's not in essence what Miami really was in terms of you know what was created here through Howard Schnellenberger and Jimmy Johnson and 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 kept going through you know Dennis Erickson and you know, ultimately Larry Coker. It, it was it was it was about a style of play. It was about a a, a culture in the locker room, and that's really been the big thing we've tried to really impose on our football team here in the past two weeks and since we've been back in campus, all of the great Miami teams and all of the great Miami players have 
without exception come back and, and told our team that Miami was great because the locker room controlled the locker room and it was you never want to be the guy that let your teammates down and ultimately the, the pack inside the locker room would be the ones that would correct it and so you know creating a program that has some things inside it that can empower our leaders to jump start that culture again and, and when you have guys like Shaq Quarterman and Mike Pickney and Zach McLeod return for their senior year because they want to be those guys they've, they've heard it they've been you know mentored by John Vilma and John Beeson and DJ Williams and and a lot of those guys, and, and they want to be those guys, you know, just, just like how those guys invested in, and, and, and those three, they want to be the guys that invest in, in, in the younger guys in our locker room and really create that culture where the players have such accountability within the locker room that they would never, you know, it just doesn't make any sense that why you would ever let one of your, one of your brothers, one of your teammates down. For, uh, for a lot of people who don't know your story, maybe they know you as a really good defensive coordinator who's risen up, but son of the former mayor of Miami, grew up there. Before we get into like your unique path into coaching, so I remember seeing a story that I think was at the Nebraska-Miami-Schnellenberger game. You remember as a little kid watching that one, or what was your first real Miami memory? My first Miami memory actually goes back a few years prior to that. I think it was like 81. I remember Miami, they were playing Maine or somebody really random in the orange but i think jim kelly was still playing quarterback at that time and it may not have been Maine, but it was somebody just nondescript and but it was you know it was when you, you know, grew up in miami in the 80s that was a, that was a heck of a time for football you know and obviously when when miami won it in 83 and and then you know jimmy came in the next year and, and there's just so many amazing memories in the orange Bowl, really the dolphins at that time as well but just the canes um you know, and, and that, that as a kid, you just had the opportunity to be there and just, you, you know, you were like witnessing history firsthand. So just, and, 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 I, and I do say that, that as Miami as a city grew, it was growing at, at the same time as the hurricanes were growing as well. And I think a lot of the identity of, of this town is really tied in to those Miami Hurricanes teams in the 80s and 90s because as Miami was really struggling to find its identity with, you know, the, the diversity and the mixture down here between all the cultures. You know, I think I think UM football was something that everyone down here could have ownership of because it was ultimately everyone's team. It, it represented our culture and our people. And, and, you know, when they were going off and beating the great powers like Nebraska and Oklahoma, that was, that was really the first thing that the people down here could puff their chest out and say, hey, this is our resource. This is our, these are our children going out there and playing and proving that they could be as good as anybody in the country. And that, that was a big morale boost to Miami in the 80s. And, there, you know, Miami had, had been taking some hits at that time. There was a, you know, there were some negative connotations to Miami at that time. So it was, you know, what UM football did and to that token, Dan Marino and the Dolphins, that was, that was a big part of the uh, sort of the, the, the self-esteem of the, of the city at that time. Yeah, there was definitely an edge there. I mean, you had some, some riots. You had a lot of... You know, the drug culture, I think, has gotten, you know, been well documented. It was definitely uh, has definitely had a hard edge to it. And I think for a lot of times, for a lot of people who who look at it, I think that, you know, they saw Miami. And, and like you said, I think they saw one side of it. And there were some, you know, well documented stories, you know, certainly in Sports Illustrated that I don't know if I would say they glamorized that, but they certainly I think they played it up maybe more so than it probably went on at other programs with some of the off-field stuff. And so it became, you know, the things I remember writing about for the Kane Mutiny book was just like Miami embraced wearing the black hat. Now, if you look back at Miami versus Penn State in that game, I think that maybe the images of those things, you know, look like they were more out of central casting than they may have been genuine. And you talk to some of the old coaches. I remember talking to Joe Brodsky, I think he was the running back coach on Jimmy Johnson's team, and he was just talking about how, you know, people wanted to play up a certain image with Miami, and Miami just kind of, a lot of those guys had fun with it, and like, they embraced it, you know? Yeah, you, you believe what you want to believe, right? And uh, and, and that's funny, because looking back at it now, a lot of the things back then would, would barely make a blip in today's world, right? And, and the way things are now, and, and you know, we're so, so much more desensitized to things that, you know, that back in the eighties were shocking, you know, like, Oh my gosh, like these players are trying to express themselves. You know, you know I mean, you know, now you watch a, and even the NFL guy in the act, you mean, you watch a pro game and everybody's posing for pictures after a touchdown or whatever. But those were, those were stunning things back in the, you know, why don't you act like you've been there before, you know, you know, days of, of sports. And, 
and and it's not a matter of what's right or wrong, but it just it just was unique at that time. No different than when you, if you remember when the Fab Five got to Michigan, and people can believe that their shorts went down to their knees, and you know what are they trying to do? What kind of statement are they trying to make? You know, and and, and no one would ever think, you know, if, if I asked my my kids today, hey, look at look at these five guys playing for Michigan. Look at the statement they're trying to make. My kids would be like, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, they they wouldn't they wouldn't see anything that would be shocking in any way, which. Uh, you know, if you grew up playing, you know, high school basketball like I did in the '80s, and you had the old, you know, you know John Stockton shorts, shorts yeah. Old, yeah, yeah, the old John Stockton specials. You know that, you know, thank God they invented the, the, the spandex tights that went under the old Charles Barkley spandex tights at that time, because that was the only thing that kind of that, that, that gave you a little bit of uh, that safe face at all. So yeah, I think some but, of the. But, I'm sorry, good. You know, some of the image I think also was like two of their biggest rivals were Notre Dame and then certainly Penn State. Well, who who seemed to be, you know, playing into the you know the darling image you know of Middle America a lot was was those Notre Dame teams because of you know the folklore of that place and certainly back then of the of the Joe Paterno days of of you know that and so it was like black hat versus white hat and. And you know, like kind of the old Western kind of ways, and I think that just yeah, kind of fit into it. You're you're you're, you're crushing in on the establishment, and really, if you look at from a broad picture, if you look at college football, I mean, the established programs have really not changed through the course of time, and you could really argue that it's really Miami, and then you could you could go into you know you could sort of piggyback you know Florida State and Florida along the way, kind of a little bit afterwards. You know, it, it's not hard. You just Google you know, hey, who's won a national championship in college football? You know, through the through through the course of time, you're going to see trends, and then there'll be a couple outliers out there, and then and then everything changed in 1983. You know, the, the state of Florida showed up, starting with Miami, and, and then like I said, the other schools kind of hopped in, and and but that was an establishment deal. You know, I mean, it was just it was going to be, you know, in the 80s, it was going to be Nebraska, and it was going to be Oklahoma. I mean, you know, the three years to me that really put Miami in the back with Jimmy Johnson, when Oklahoma went 33 and three in three years and lost to Miami. For those three losses, I mean that that was the beginning of the changing the guard and the way that you know really that Jimmy Johnson changed ultimately college football with with uh, with a style of play that eventually he did the same thing to the NFL. Yeah. So for I, I don't know the answer to this, but I know obviously you, you went to Florida State. So at what point do you become? Because I feel like a lot of ways Miami fans they may hate Florida, but for a long time, even though they had great games with Florida State. They felt like it was kind of like, hey, we're kind of similar. We're just in different parts of the state. But there was a lot of the same edge at Florida State. It seemed like it was there. And I think people liked Bobby Bowden, you know, at, at UM. So when do you become, I mean, as soon as you enroll there, do you become, okay, this is my school. This is where I'm going to school. I'm going to be a Seminole. Or how did you kind of, uh, how did you kind of take it at that point when you, when you shift to be an, an FSU student? Well, I, yeah, I would certainly say that Miami Florida State is one of the great rivalries in all of college football. And I mean, there's just so many games that, you know, if if you know, if only they had the playoff now, if they had the 14 playoff now, there's probably so many years that both Miami and Florida State would have been in the playoff. Um, you know, because of the, the games, that, the, the way they came down, and really determined who they're playing for the national championship. You know, which whichever way that game went, there are a lot of kids that grew up in Miami as Hurricane fans that end up in Tallahassee for for various reasons. But I, I do think there has been, I would say in this state, I do think there's been a level of respect between those two programs for no other reason that they've always played. And I think the idea that Florida, you know, who has sort of been, you know, as from a mandate, you know, Florida, Florida State, it sort of have to play politically, and and then Florida and Miami has has, has not been a has not been always a thing, you know. And I think there's been some feelings about that, and and um, and you know, and I, and I think both both Miami and, and Florida State both felt like they were they they had to you know, sort of rise up in the state and, and in the eighties and, and you know, again under the coaches that came through at Miami and under Bobby Bowden Fort State and and sort of ascended to a level where that would that's really what put them ahead of the University of Florida. And you know, and then and then, you know, of course Florida was able to, you know, respond with Spurrier and the different other coaches that went through there. But yeah, I mean Miami and FSU though that's that's an amazing rivalry. And I think when, you know, like I said, there's a lot of kids that grow up here and you end up in you end up in Tallahassee and you say, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put the Knowles colors on and be there. And I had a harsh introduction because my first two years in, in Tallahassee were the first two wide rights. You know, so that was, that was kind of heartbreaking. Those were those were two uh, those were two pretty hard Saturdays to be a Florida State fan. But that was that was a definitely an introduction to the rivalry from from the from the from the other side. 
So you go you go up to Tallahassee. Full disclosure, you and I worked together. We both started at ESPN. I want to say now it's probably 23 years ago or something. You were younger than me, but I remember getting to Bristol. And so at that point, do you go on? You think you're going to be the next Dan Patrick, or did you want to be behind the scenes? Like, what was your goal coming out of Florida State? Yeah, I was definitely gunning for Dan Patrick's job. I mean, I mean, not really knowing. You know, when you're young, you don't really know what you're up against, right? You know, you, you're full of ambition. and You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. And, and, and thank God you don't. Because if you did, then you, you really would you would never attempt anything. But my thought was I was going to go in there and learn from the best and, and, and be able to sort of hop in, maybe skip a step. You know, so that's because you've been at ESPN, and, you know, instead of going to the 313th market in the country for your first job, you know, maybe you could skip it and get somewhere in the hundreds, you know, because of your experience. So I was there. I was there for a year, and you know, put together a resume tape, and you know, started sending him out. And I still say to this day, if 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 any of those, you know, news directors or sports directors would have, would have written back and said, hey, you know, be here by next Sunday, there's no telling where I'd be where I'd be right now. But luckily, I I guess I I, I stunk enough at at, um, at at doing the news or, or broadcasting the sports that uh, that I ended up. Um, sticking around long enough to realize that, that maybe coaching was my my true calling so this is the crazy twist for me and it's like goes back to that maybe you don't know what you didn't you don't know what you don't know or you know because logic at least back then would tell me okay you you can't really i mean maybe you could be a coach maybe but it just seems like it seems like it would be a long shot to jump into the middle of it and you already in a relationship so it wasn't like you were like flying solo right so you go to you through your connection with it was sterling sharp right not shannon sharp right. get in a kind of a foot in the door right but you're still you're basically just in the recruiting office and you're moonlighting at that right so that's was that the beginning or like how big of a of a jump was that where you tell were you married at the time or was your girlfriend at the time no yeah no steph and i were married and and, and to make it even crazier you know we were pregnant with our first son and, and we decided to make the jump and just move back to Tallahassee and get into grad school. And I just kind of threw rocks at the window of the Florida State football program. And I knew Chuck Amato was a guy that kind of handled the day-to-day operations of the program. And finally, I got I got in front of him right before the season started. And I said, I'll do anything. And still, I'm sharp called on my behalf. And he said, this is an amazing story. But he goes, I hate to tell you, but you can't help. You know, you can't volunteer. Once you've got your undergrad and you're in graduate school, you can't help. We can only have two GAs. So I sat there and I told him, well, guess what? I said, I just quit graduate school. And he goes, no. He goes, that's not how it works. It doesn't matter whether you're in grad school or not. Once you once you got your bachelor's, you cannot volunteer at a football program and explain to me what, why the rule was. So I walked out of that that day and it kind of defeated. Like, okay, well, this is... This and you'd already quit, uh, quit ESPN job? I already quit ESPN and just moved to Tallahassee. And again, and, and my, my, my son is about maybe a week away from being born. And um, he calls back the next day. He goes, I'll tell you what, we found out something you can do. He goes, technically, because it's not involved in football, you can work in the recruiting office and you can basically stuff envelopes and, you know, you know, address, you know, address letters and just be, I mean, you're in essence a, a mailroom intern. You could have been working, I could have been working at a law office or anywhere else. And I said, I'll take it. And I had a, I had a part-time job uh, uh, downtown in Tallahassee in the mornings. And, um, and then at right, right around noon, I'd run over there to the football office. And for four hours, I'd sit in there and, and like I said, lick envelopes and, and uh, log tapes and just put labels on VHS tapes or just, just do whatever it took. And it, but, but it got you in the building and ultimately that was the, that was the first step. So when, uh, by the way, what was the conversation like with your wife? How, how much convincing did you have to do? Go, no, seriously, this is what I really want to do. You gotta, can you roll with this? Like, how do you, like, did you, was it a hard sell? I mean, did she think you were crazy? Did she know this was deep down or something that always kind of driven you? You know, it's crazy. I think it was the other way. I think, I think she probably had more to do convincing me than the other way around. Because I think I think she saw it, and she was the one. If, if it, I, I don't think I could have done it if I had to be the one convincing her, let's go do this. But I think we were, again, we were just at that age. We were just both young enough where we just felt like we could make a move and do something. And uh, and it was, you know, again, you're you're kind of you're sort of in that idealistic, you know, why why can't I do this? You know, I mean, you're, you're young, you feel you can conquer the world, and and she was she was really. Like she, she, she wants. She may have seen it and wanted it even more than I did at that time. And 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 if because if if there had been any pushback or if I would have had to convince her, I don't think I ever would have done it. Did uh, when you were at ESPN or even before that, did you kind of kick yourself that you didn't try to help out in Bobby about you know like in the football office in some capacity as an undergrad? 
No, because, you know, really, I felt like that was really the next best thing. I thought I had a great college career. I mean, you know, Florida State was a great place to be in the 90s. You know, I was, I, there was a great series of events where they, a new newspaper started my freshman year on campus. And by my sophomore year, I was a sports editor. And, you know, so you got press passes to all these great events and interviewing Bobby Bowden and Mike Krzyzewski when Duke comes to town. And just, you know, just things you can't believe you're doing. And, you know, on the, on the sideline, when Florida State wins their first national championship against Nebraska and the Orange Bowl, I mean, from Kid Drunk in Miami, these things are just like, how is this happening, you know? And, um, I mean, I thought that was it. I really thought that that was the, the next best thing. You know, I, I, you know, I, I always wanted the, a job in sports, you know, and I figured if, you know, if I couldn't play it professionally, I wanted to cover it professionally. And, um, and it wasn't until being at ESPN and getting around guys like Sterling Sharp where I realized, you know what, there may be one little there may be one little thing that I might just want to do more than just covering it, and uh, and it turned out that was coaching it. So, at what point do you get going from stuffing envelopes and doing just kind of I don't say grunt work, but just what you were doing to being able to actually know, learn football at a high level in terms of especially you know now you're a, you you were a defensive coordinator, but just like. To, to know more than what the average kid who played high school football knows. Are you learning that on the side? Like, what was that education like? Well, so, you know, the stuffing elbows got me in the door. And then and then after the first football season, so this is 97 football season. Back then, there were there were only two GAs and there were two jobs that they called the cinematographer. And those were the guys that helped, you know, break down the film. They would film a practice, you know, do that type of stuff. And one of those guys left on the defensive side of the ball. And... You know, and I think this is a great device for anybody in any in any line of work. You know, I was just in the building, and and Florida State at that time was just rolling. You know, and they were really the industry standard. And you know, when when they have a job opening, they're really not interested in, in, in doing a conducting a national search for an entry level job like that. And so they kind of, you know, recruiting season came about. I told you I was in the recruiting office. So when official visit, official visit season came, and you're running kids to the airport, and you're just you're just a dependable guy, right? People that can do small jobs well eventually get handed, handed bigger jobs, and that's really what it was all about. I just remember there was like, Mike Bloomgren has a, a different path too. Was he? Did you guys cross paths in Tallahassee when he was an undergrad? Yeah, Mike, or? Yeah, Mike, Mike, Mike and I were both there in 97 together, and we've been friends ever since. You know, he, he was an undergrad student at that time, you know, uh, helping out on, in the program. And, and so when, when that job opened on defense, they kind of looked around and said, hey, you, you know, you, you seem like you're a decent guy. And, and um and, and that's as simply as it happened. But, but, but the great part was being a sort of a, you know, a blank page and just being able to be a sponge because you're not going to walk in there and say, Hey, by the way, I've got some ideas, right? It's like, it's like walking to FedEx and say, you know, I think I have a better idea on how to ship a package. I'm pretty sure FedEx pretty much knows every way to ship a package. They really want someone at the entry level job to go in there with a great attitude that they can train and do a great job. And that's really what was going on at Florida State in the 90s. So to be able to sit there and just absorb from Mickey Andrews and Chuck Amato and, and that staff, not to mention Bobby Bowden, who, you know, has you know, won as many games as anybody ever. And just that staff and, and, and just at that time, I mean, it was, it, was, it was literally getting a Ph.D. in championship football. So, you know, a lot of what shaped me as a coach and a lot of what I still refer to back to this day, I really learned at, in those first three years at FSU. So you you bounced around and went. You, Chuck brings you to NC State when he gets there, and you you guys end up having some really good players. And I know some of the guys who were on that staff, and and then you you worked your way up. Who for people now who go okay, okay, I've seen kind of what kind of social media presence, but yeah, as you mentioned, you know Chuck Amato, Mickey Andrews, certainly Bobby Bowden. Who would you say is the force maybe in the back of your head who's most influential on how you want to run the University of Miami football program? Boy, that's a great question. I think I think that's a I think you've got to take a little bit from from all the people you've worked with, and there's so many different people who have who have influenced you. Certainly, when you're really young and first into it, you know, and the guys at FSU, and and then seeing Chuck and some of the guys that that work with him at NC State, and you know, a guy like Reggie Herring, who you know brought the number one defense to NC State at that time, learned a lot from him. And, but then the head coaches, you know, whether it's Rick Stockstill or Dan Mullen or Mac Brown or um, Skip Holtz. I mean, with every with every boss you have, you you, you learn. You know, everybody. We, we you know we all have our different strengths, right? And you know, number one, you have to be genuine to yourself. You have to, you have to be authentic to who you are. Because if you're not, then the kids see through that. Whether you're a coordinator or a position coach or head coach, they see that right away. But but you definitely see how different ways that different people run their programs. You definitely see the 
all of these programs all descend from somewhere, right? You know, so, you know, you've got, you know, you don't have much of a Bowden, you know, you know, I, I could see Bobby Bowden through Mark Richt. You know, I could see, I could see Bobby Bowden and Skip Holtz. I could see, I could see Lou Holtz in, 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 in Skip, but I could also see Lou Holtz and Chuck because Chuck was a GA for Lou Holtz. I mean, there's, we're all descended from someone and, and, and all of us in this profession have been, have been influenced by someone. And, and so you, you can see, you know, there's just, there's not as many, when you kind of run us all up a tree, there's probably not as many branches as, as people would think. We were all probably influenced, you know, in some shape or form by these, you know, some of these major players that have been, that have, you know, come all before us. Mm. So I think you, I think you try to put it all together and then, and then you're obviously going to, you know, you know, certainly, uh, you know, look at people from from afar. You know, I, I had, I had uh, you know, Pete Carroll had a great influence on me. I mean, I mean, the the video he put out on on tackling and, and taking the head out of tackling was a game changer. It's a game changer for us on defense. I think it's a game changer for us as a sport. And a guy that just cared enough about the sport to say, "Hey, listen, if we want to do this for a long time, we got to change the tactics and the techniques in which we teach." For a defensive player, the number one thing you do, you have, you have to learn how to tackle. So, you know, so that that was very important. And, and uh, you know, but you, you know, just through reading different books and different people's experiences, I mean, there's so many ways you can find influences. But more than anything, you have, you have to find out what fits you. Because if you're not you, then you're not going to get very far. What did you learn from your dad about leadership? That's a great question. You know, he you know, everyone always asks, what was it like growing up in a political family? And people forget that he was not mayor until I was already at NC State. And he had never held a political office prior to. So he and I really got into those conversations when I was already into coaching. And then, and then really the second, his second term was about when I became defense coordinator for the first time. What you do learn is you learn that you have to have a vision and you have to be true to your vision. And you can't really waver because of external things. Because the way that you're going to be judged the way that people are going to talk about you publicly, the way you're going to be, you know, sometimes dissected in the media is going to be people that quite honestly don't really always know all the information um, because you don't always have the ability to come out and say, here's why this decision was truly made or here's why we thought this on, in this situation. You just have to do what's right anyway. And, 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 and at times understand you're going to take the hit because you don't have the wherewith you're, 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 you're not given the, the, um, the true freedom to really explain why a decision was made. And, and be honest, at times it's not important as to why the decision was made. And so if you're a guy that's, you know, sort of sticks his thumb out the wind every day and tries to figure out which way the wind is blowing and try to go that way, you're not going to make it very far. But at the same time, you have to make sure that you listen to smart people around you because this, this is not, there's no there's no leader that's ever made it without without a, a great staff of, of people around them that, that can provide great counsel and that can also complement your you know, where I would say you're, you know, all of us have certain strengths and all of us have spots where we're not quite as strong. And, you know, it's important to have a staff that can, that can highlight those areas, you know, because our personalities are also different. So I think those are the biggest things, you know, and, and just understanding the, you know, living life in the, in the public eye and, 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 you know, and the good that's going to come with that, but also the bad and the criticism that's going to come with that, not just for yourself, but for your family, you know, and, and understanding how to, how to best buffer your family from, from what will sound inherently personal, but but ultimately can't be taken as such. Yeah, it's a unique situation you're in as a true son of Miami, with especially, I mean, you probably had an adult perspective on what he was experiencing in that regard as a, you know, it's just a very different different perspective than I think most probably head coaches get. There's no doubt. I mean, it's just, and even to this day, you know, because, you know, I mean, and now probably at this point, even though he, though he's out of office, because he was, you know, he had a two-term deal, you know, just our ability to talk and, and understand things, even as crazy as it sounds, and, you know, you talk about social media and just understanding about pushing the message and, and winning the narrative, and, and ultimately it doesn't matter, nothing matters, we have to win the game, you know, we have we have a scoreboard, but let's be real, I mean, college football, there's, there's a lot of, you know, we only play, you know, we, if we played 162 or if we played 82 games, it would be different, you know, we played 12 plus you know, 13, 14, and there's a lot of other days in the year. And now with the with the 24-7 sports news cycle, you know, there's a lot to talk about. And there's a lot more to talk about other than just, you know, who won a game on October 6th. So I think being able to understand that and being able to help try to create the message. And I think uh, and even just the background of understanding of being in the media side and understanding what people want and, and, and what their motivations are and, 
and all that. I think I think all that you know certainly helps. Well, maybe this is a good segue into the one question my colleague Stu uh, wanted me to bring up was the transfer portal. Everyone talks about it on social media. Who's related to college sports? You guys have been very active in it, so I would imagine you know having a quote unquote hot program or having some so a lot of energy around it has probably made it enticing to kids looking for a fresh start. Correct. I think so. Well, well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things that make us unique in, in that regard. Number one is obviously because of you know we didn't have the best December at Miami, right? And I kind of contributed to that with with you know you know but you know leaving you know when I did. So we end up with a little bit you know some extra scholarships left for the second go around for the second signing day. So you know, I think there, that, that that's part of it. Secondly, there's a unique situation. Our our senior class right now would be the senior class that was signed in the transition from Golden to Rick. And we have some amazing players in that class, like the linebackers, you know, Pigney and, and Quarterman and, and McLeod and some others as well. But we have right now, as we were transitioning in, into after our bowl game, we have without, this is not, this is hard to believe, we have seven seniors on our football team, seven. Wow. And I've never been on, in a situation where we've had seven seniors. So... The, the look to bring in transfers was really twofold. One, it's important to address your issues, right? And, you know, there were certainly some things on our football team that we felt like needed to be addressed. Maybe some positions that weren't playing as good as we thought they could play to be at the level that Miami needs to be at. But second, sometimes you need age. There's just a difference with age. And we have had great success in all three years here bringing in some grad transfers on defense. We've had a Adrian Colbert our first year, Tito Delaney our second year, and then Tito Adenabo our third year. All came in, all for a specific reason, because they walked into a position where we were young and we needed an experienced guy, and we needed a guy that knew how to work, knew how to had what, what the importance of the last go-round of every practice, every meeting, every lift. Well, now when you, when you take over a football team, you realize you only have seven seniors. And in essence, three of them play linebacker, and then Romeo Finley plays our striker position. It's almost like four of them play in three positions. You have three seniors in every other position. Holy cow, that is as inexperienced or as young you can be, in, and certainly from a leadership perspective. So you got to get an, an older uh, quarterback. You got to get an older wide receiver. You got to get an older defensive back. You got to get maybe an older guy on the defensive line. So part of it is in, in straight response to where we were as a roster and, and then yes with this really being the first full year of, of the transfer and I think a place like Miami when, when kids the second go around they're probably more understanding of what they're really looking for and not caught up in some of the the flash that might attract you when you're first coming out of high school I think this is this is a pretty uh, you know enticing place to come play uh, your final year or two of college football how much space do you guys have right now well it all depends you know I mean I mean we've got we have a handful of spots left, and obviously we got we got some targets. And you know you got to go. This is where everybody everybody in college football is kind of playing this numbers game. You know you got to find a number of spots. And how many targets do you have left, and how many you have to fit? And then assuming they all come, you probably can't take them all. But they generally speaking don't all come. But in the past, where maybe you were at the and this this is probably this is not the right term to use, but you were at the mercy of of the guys that you're recruiting. Now you can supplement that with the transfers. So let's say, you know, you've, you're really trying to sign one guy at this position and you're really, really got your fingers crossed on this guy. It's kind of 50-50. You're not sure how it's going to turn. Well, guess what? Now there might be a transfer who can really come in and help your team out next year. And that can lessen the blow if you don't get this guy. Now, is that sustainable? Is that the way we want to build our program going forward? No, not necessarily because you want to be a team of, of one-year mercenaries. But again, when you have a roster with seven seniors, you have to address your situation. I think that's been more what, we're, what we've been trying to look at. And then, you know, then obviously we want to get into our recruiting footprint, you know, down the road and, and recruit to a level that Miami really, you know, should be recruited towards. Do you guys go into the office every morning? Is it you or is it somebody in your recruiting office go, let me see who's new into the portal? Well, it happens. I mean, a lot of times you don't even, you know, you find out the news in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, I mean it's, it, it's a nonstop thing. We, we, you know, obviously we're certainly – monitoring it like everyone else is but uh but you hear a lot of times you'll you'll hear before the guy officially enters the portal i mean there's just a lot of ways that you know that that uh you know the word word gets out and gets around and and uh but the portal now gives you the ability to you know to to contact different guys and then we've had guys go in the opposite direction as well i think this is just the new normal and, and you know we could 
we can have another 30 minute conversation on, on the good and bad about it, but it just, it is what it is. And, and, uh, but if it's out there and there's good players that can help to help your football team, then, then, you know, again, my responsibility for the University of Miami is to make sure we do whatever we can to put a good, as good a football team out there next year as we can. Yeah, when I talked to some recruiting coordinators, the one thing they had said was, you, know, you just don't know who's eligible. You don't know really anything. So it's on you to do, kind of do your due diligence and, and you know, turn over. You know, like I remember your D. Delaney guy was a 1AA was, was a player. Sounds like he was a hell of a player, but right. you know, there's probably a that's one in 500 or so. Right, and why are they transferring? Because not not all guys transferring are, are guys that you want. Sometimes there's transferring problems, but but there could be other situations. Sometimes it's a fit. It's a it's a you know a new coaching staff has taken over and, and they want a different style of guy to play for them. And you know because that, that happens. You know and and uh, and uh, you know I mean Adrian Colbert was you know had kind of hit the end of the road at Texas and came and had a great career. And the guy's starting for the 49ers in the NFL. So you know we all want different things. There's there's a lot of ways to you know, up the same mountain. And so there are, there have been guys, again, I think if you're, if you're very selective and, and understand for the right reason, you know, why, why a guy might be wanting to leave the situation he's in, because there's plenty of dis, disgruntled guys, you know, that, that no matter where they'll go, they'll be disgruntled. But so you, you got to do your homework. You got to do your diligence to make sure that you get the right guy that you really think can prove your football team. All right, Manny. Well, we appreciate your time. I didn't, I kept you way longer than I anticipated. And I'm sure the, and probably you anticipated, but there's a lot of enthusiasm about UM again. And for people who don't uh, who don't follow Manny, I would say follow him, even if you're not a UM fan. At it's at Coach underscore Manny Diaz, and um, they like I said, there's a lot of buzz around the program again, which uh, I would maintain. And maybe I'm biased because I went to Miami, but it's good for college football when programs like Miami are are rolling. And it's it's been a while and. Two years ago, you guys had it going, and then it tailed off, and I suspect you guys will get it cranked up pretty soon. I appreciate that, Bruce. Yeah, I, I think I think everyone enjoys it when the when the canes are when the canes are, are around and it's fun, and, and you know, obviously, you know, these Saturday nights in, in Miami when when the town's rocking, it's just it's a unique it's a unique deal in college football, and uh, and we saw how we saw a glimpse of that two years ago, so we know we're not very far. We think it's right around the corner from happening again. All right, thanks, Manny. I appreciate it. Always, Bruce, anytime. And now, pleased to be joined by uscfootball.com founder and publisher, Ryan Abraham. Ryan, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bruce. How's it going? Good. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's going that great in Trojan land. Uh, I feel like when we last really talked with you, Clay Helton's was kind of hanging by a thread on for another season, and they end up hiring Cliff Kingsbury. That didn't last but, but about a month. So what's the state of USC football right now? It's, uh, yeah, it's a little crazy just being around USC. I mean, you can start at the top. Uh, USC doesn't have a permanent president in place. The last president had to step down with all these scandals going on. They got billionaires in the board of trustees fighting and having secret meetings over deans that were dismissed that a lot of people feel shouldn't have been dismissed. You had the football team that's coming off a five and seven season had some good news, like you said, with the Cliff Kingsbury uh, hiring. But you know, thirty five days later, he's gone, and he's now the head coach at the Arizona Cardinals. And you think got some good news with Brew McCoy, a five star receiver from Modern Day High School here in Southern California. He actually signed and you know committed at the All American Bowl. Both that's been you know potentially that could be reversed now. There's just a lot of weird and bad news, I guess, around the USC football program, Bruce, and you just. Just look at the, the, the team and, and what's going on. They should be good. You know, there's a lot of talent on this team, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to be able to get out of their own way. And it's just like day after day, bad news, bad news, bad news coming. And I'm just not sure where they're going from here. It's been over two weeks and they still don't have an offensive coordinator. And it's just the fans are, are just restless as all, you know, as anything. And we're just not really sure what to tell them because it doesn't look it just doesn't look like this team can get out of their own way, like I said. Yeah, uh, to me, it feels like USC's always had a level of dysfunction. You know, it's it's kind of one in spite of that because you have these these uh, you know athletic directors who aren't always conventional in how they approach things. So I think that puts it in a weird place. But yet, like you said, you have pockets of talent that is very impressive, and so here comes you know here comes Cliff, and okay, that's something for people to get excited about. And then he turns around and leaves. You, as you mentioned, it's not just Brew McCoy. You get Kyle Ford and a bunch of other really tout, you know, touted recruits coming in there. And then they, you know, in this case, it sure sounds like this one may end up at Texas. 
and do a 180. As we're taping this, it sounds like he's kind of on the fence and maybe USC's trying to talk him back in the boat. I would imagine he'd have to sit out if not, just because, like you said, he's already in class and it's, you know, lots of coaches come and go. So at least assistant coaches, the idea that the NCAA would let somebody be eligible you know, after going someplace else and signing and going to class, that seems like it would be a weird precedent. So any read on what they're going to do, at least as an, as terms of like who they're going to hire to replace Kingsbury? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. And I think it was a home run for Kingsbury for sure. Like, I, you know, you can be critical of what USC was doing. That was great. I think that's the move they needed to make after the season when Lynn Swan brought Clay Helton back, which wasn't a popular decision among USC fans. He made that crazy statement where he said, you know, they need to change the culture and the scheme and the discipline and the personnel and the staff. And it's like, that's a lot of changes and you're not changing your head coach. You needed to make some big moves. Kingsbury was that move. They needed to make something equivalent to it. And I don't think there's anybody out there, Bruce, that could even come close to the kind of impact that a Cliff Kingsbury would have. And there was five, there was five assistants that were turned over. Uh, one had left, the other guys were fired. None of the other assistants really were a big impact kind of hire. Maybe Mike Jenks, uh, who was the head coach at Bowling Green, that was more of an impactful one, but you got like a Joe DeForest that was promoted from an analyst. So that's an internal you know, promotion. That's not a big hire. That's not a big change. So they needed to do something big. I just don't know. You know, over two weeks, I think 15 days now since Kingsbury left, we just haven't heard much of anything. You know, you're hearing guys maybe have turned it down, people that they're potentially talking to in the NFL, and you know, obviously that's still going on. But it's just there's not an obvious choice, so it was going to be a really tough task anyway for USC. But, you know, guys like yourself, the people that talk to agents, people, you know, the, the football scoops of the world, you're not hearing much of anything from anybody on that. And I, I don't think that's a good sign. It's not – it can't be really positive for USC right now. It's been going on this long and still really nothing coming out of USC. Yeah, the part that was curious to me was they hired Cliff. And what's critical for offensive coordinators, especially area guys, is to have one of their own O-line guys. And he didn't have that. He was able to bring one assistant. It was Mike Jenks. It was a guy who was on his Texas Tech staff before Jenks got the Bowling Green job. And so Tim Drevno is still there as the O-line coach. And in some ways, I can understand why, you know, you've had so much turnover on the O-line coaching staff in the last, whatever it is, decade that maybe that Clay Helton, an old O-line guy or son of an old O-line guy himself, decided, you know, like, let's keep this guy I know and I'm comfortable with going forward and who knows i mean you hear you know you've heard jed fish's name a little bit but you know jed fish and drevno work together at at michigan i'm not sure you know what their relationship has has not been the greatest from all all things i had heard but you know it's it's a weird place usc's in because like you said i mean they they recruit well in spite of all this but you just wonder you know where is this headed so i would ask you this you have a, a good feel for the pulse of usc fans do USC fans just hope, hey, you know, we're going to write off 2019, figure we're going to have a coaching change and just kind of like shrug our shoulders till then and hope they finally make the right decision, whether it's Lynn Swan as the AD or whoever else, you know, if and when they do hire a replacement for Clay Helton? Yeah, I, I think there's a, okay, there's definitely a fraction. The USC fans are kind of, I mean, a lot of people are on the same page of not liking Clay Helton, but there's a portion of the fan base it's almost like it's like you're rooting for the train crash or the, the hurricane to, to come ashore and it cause damage. They just want this to be over with. So they see this as one failure after another, and they're ready to just write off 2019. Cancel, like cancel the season and say, you know what, whatever it takes to get rid of Clay Helton, to get rid of Lynn Swan, to, to rip the bandit up, just end this. So there's definitely a, a portion of the fan base that's like they're just over this. They just feel like... Uh, you know, the, the organization doesn't know what they're doing. They keep making mistake after mistake. And despite all the inherent advantages of being at USC, which you can skate by, you can make a lot of bad decisions and still do well. I mean, 2016, USC was 1-3, got blown up by Alabama, and they end up beating Penn State in the Rose Bowl. Like, not a lot of programs could, could do that. But USC has these kind of, you know, you got a Sam Darnold. You got people like that that just come to the program and, can, and lift things up. But I think there's just been so many failures in a row that the advantages you have of just being at USC are, are, are not going to, you can't overcome that. And if you just look at the organization from the outside, like if you go to a restaurant or you go to uh, a car dealership, like you can walk into a business and, and know 
this is a well-organized place. This, these people, it's well-run. They know what they're doing. You can't look at the USC athletic department right now and go, you know what, this is a well-run organization. Like, there's no way you could think that. It just seems like there's just chaos right now. And without a president and all that, you, you hired your third athletic director in a row who's a former football player. It's, it's, it's time for them to just kind of blow things up and start from scratch, bring in people that know what they're doing, that have done these jobs before, and try to get back on track. I think they can recover quickly, but, you know, they've made so many bad decisions in a row. I think at this point, you just have to stop, stop you know, stop what you're doing, go, you know, start, go from square one, hire experienced people, and get things rolling again. No more USC people, no more keeping the same, you know, fight them in the athletic department, all that stuff. Just blow that up and start again. And short of that, Bruce, I'm not sure what else they can do well who would do that so like you said no president in place lots of other issues quite honestly that are that are bigger than football or are connected to the university now so who would you know lynn swan is going to be lynn swan who's going to step in and go no you can't do that or no we want to shift in a different direction i mean they have big money boosters but some of those i know have been kind of pushed on into the margins by all this and the way things have handled so what what's going to What's going to change it? Well, I think it starts with a new president. So, they, you know, within the next few months, I think they will have uh, somebody. So, they're, you know, the board of trustees is looking at all that. But there's, like you said, there's billionaires in the board of trustees. They had a secret meeting yesterday and the board of trustees fighting over all this stuff. So I think you do have a lot of people with a lot of money that don't see eye to eye. They're upset with the way things are going. I think a lot of them are upset with the way Lynn Swan has handled things. And it's going to take somebody who, I mean, whoever it is, if it's the president can come in and look at everything and go, wow, this is a mess. We got to start over again. Uh, the problem is you just had people kind of coming in and learning from the people that were doing it before. They weren't coming in with fresh eyes and seeing things new and saying, you know what, this is the way we used to do things over here. A guy like Lynn Swan that comes in to observe because he's never been an athletic director. He's not going to change anything. I think that's what you need. So the, it'll start with the president. I think the board of trustees would have to be on board. And then you just start making changes there. You know, maybe it's still this one. Maybe you, you kind of put people around him and that can, can help him out. But you have to change the culture there. It's just been, it's just been just terror. The culture's just been poisonous. And I don't know what they can do besides making huge changes. And it's going to have to start with the new president whenever he gets in there. Well, aside from Brew McCoy, who's been looking around and sounds like Texas is, is the place he would land if he's going to go there. Have you heard other I, – I know Achille Ross, who was a former four-star guy who basically has decided to leave for a long time, and he's in the transfer portal. Are there other guys that you're hearing, or do you expect some of this dysfunction to carry over to where guys are going, you know what, I'm not comfortable here. I don't you know, see where the future is of this place. I'm going to take my chances other elsewhere. Yeah, it's funny. We had USC fans kind of asking us about, hey, could USC pick anyone up from the transfer portal? It's like, well, you got to worry about losing guys to the transfer portal. But I haven't heard much outside of the Brew McCoy stuff. You even have a guy like Michael Pittman who he got a third round grade, apparently. When, you know, USC put out an article about him. He's coming back for his senior year. I think that's something that's a positive for USC, someone like that coming back. He might have, you know, of the guys that are even the seniors, he might have had the highest grade coming out there. Uh, being in the third round. So we haven't heard too much of that. I think, you know, certainly morale's not going to be great after getting a guy like Kingsbury and then losing him. I think after whoever the offensive coordinator hire is, maybe you hear a little bit more of that. But we haven't heard much of, you know, outside of this Brew McCoy stuff. Now, you still have a couple of uh, commit. They did lose one of their commitments who didn't sign early. Uh, Jordan Wilmore was a four-star uh, running back, and they got a four-star receiver and a five-star receiver that are still committed and unsigned. You mentioned Kyle Ford, and there's a Pukunakua from from Utah who was killing it at two of the All-Star games. So, like, you know, if they don't get a great offensive coordinator, you might lose those guys as well. But I haven't heard anything about current team guys that were also thinking about transferring. I mean, we've come to expect USC to close no matter who's the head coach on signing day. Obviously, that's before the early signing period in the last two years. But, I mean, what do you, I mean, is it going to be business as usual? And despite the dysfunction that a lot of kids, especially Southern California kids, when they're sitting in front of, with three hats in front of them, they're going to go for the Cardinal and Gold one in spite of all it? Yeah, they've, they've been doing that, a great job of that. Clay Hilton's been amazing at closing. And, they're, you know, sometimes the classes look like they could be in disarray. And then on the signing period, uh, Clay Helton, they close a bunch of guys. But, you know, they don't have T. Martin anymore, who was their best 
recruiter. And he was a guy that was really close with the Brew McCoy. If, if T. Martin's still on the staff somehow, Brew McCoy's probably sticking around. You know, I, I don't think he's leaving at, at that point. I think it's different this year because usually you would have something to rely on. Like you could talk about, hey, we just won the, won the Rose Bowl or, hey, you know, they won the Pac-12 championship last year. It's either five and seven. And then you got all the kind of uh, – discord going on with the program there's not really a whole lot to sell right now so this is the year i mean of all the years we've been covering we we write these classes since like 2002 with you know rivals and scout and 247 all that stuff this is the year where you know potentially if brew leaves like this could be the first year they didn't sign a five-star player this is going to be the year that they've signed the most three-star players ever so it's a different feel of a recruiting class bruce and if they can close with like puka nakua and in california it would be okay but if you don't and it's looking a little shaky right now it, i mean it'll be the worst class pretty much since we started covering this in the, the internet recruiting age and that's new territory for usc usc's always had you know top 10 recruiting class it's just no matter what's going on they seem to do that this year it could be the you know exception all right. Well, Ryan, we will keep up with it. and People should follow you on Twitter. It's Ryan Abraham, and it's at Inside Troy, and he is all over it. And check out his site. Uh, it's a 247 site called uscfootball.com. Ryan, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Anytime, Bruce. Thank you so much. All right. And we thank Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, and we also thank Manny Diaz from the U, the new head coach for the Hurricanes. Both for joining us today. It was short notice. Hopefully Stu will feel better and we'll be back to his old snarky self. And he will join me on the Audible next time and we can get to all your questions in the mailbag. See you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. About it for years. Ah, yeah. Oh, oh. Jump out of place, throw money in the New York Stock Exchange.